Welcome to our island. I'm glad you came along. This is another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. 
This is Wide Screen Podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Am I reading this title correctly? Is he doing Flaming Pie already? And no, you're not misreading anything, folks. This is actually happening. Yes, I know the standard modus operandi for this podcast is to seemingly have at least a year gap between proper album reviews. But since I very recently concluded my look at Off the Ground, uh, the bonus track specifically with Mr. Ken Michaels, and have reviewed the Fireman album with my good friend Tom Quee, and I've even got a review of Paul is Live with another good friend of mine, Dylan Seavey, on the way. I just thought it would be absolutely hilarious if we actually cracked on with the show for once. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So, with that in mind, I thought it would be best for us to surge on ahead, not dilly-daddle or dawdle, and instead we're going to bloody cover Flaming Pie. But yeah, folks, this is one of the big ones. I mean, yeah, all of these albums are pretty darn big, but Flaming Pie is one of the poster children for the McCartney discography, alongside albums such as Band on the Run, Ram, Chaos and Creation, and Tug of War, with it regularly entering people's top five albums and generally being one of the best-reviewed albums of his entire oeuvre, to the point whereby it was, like many of the albums I just mentioned, seen as a return to form for our Macca. As always, this means there's a lot of baggage surrounding this episode, and it does raise a few red flags for me. Like, is this going to be another woefully overrated album, whilst Off the Ground and Driving Rain get unfairly bashed, or is this the end of a good run before we get a couple of stinkers. Well, having listened to the album several times already, I can honestly say, eh, I'm not going to quite tell you just yet, you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks till the album review. Though, what I will say is, you know me folks, I always like to go against the perceptions of the discography, though I reckon this is going to be one of the few times where I am going to be keeping in with the fans. You know, this <laughs> it's not too difficult to see why people love this album. It is full of strong material, it's during a very strong period in McCartney's life, and it's surrounded by loads of interesting supplementary goings-on in and around its release. You know, this is the period where McCartney is becoming a true Renaissance man. The sheer amount of projects he was working on between Off the Ground and this was truly staggering, and I'm truly dreading how long it's going to take for me to read out the glut of notes and topics I prepared for this episode. But hey, bad news for me is good news for you, and I know you'll be pleased with how detailed this episode will be. That being said, our Flowers in the Dirt part one of two is our longest background episode to date, and that was about 36 pages long. Now this episode, folks, part one of three, yes you heard that, is 28 pages long, and I don't even get to the recording of the album or the band or the producer or anything to do with the actual album itself. Part two is still being written. It's not even finished and is already at another 19 pages. So, yeah, for the first time here at Paul or Nothing, Flaming Pie is an album that will be covered in a three-part series. I don't think we've done a three-part series since, like, the Paul is Dead specials. Part two is going to be the look at the recording of the album and the musicians thereon and the critical reception, its release, yada, yada, yada. Part three will be my album discussion with Dr. Duncan Driver, which you can already listen to if you're a Patreon patron. 
So yeah, with that being said, we really should crack on with things, but before we can get on with any of that, we must first press on with the matter of the housekeeping. Starting off, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, first of all, Paul McCartney's announced some new fucking tour dates, everybody! <sighs> yes, everyone, literally hours after I posted the last episode where I said it was only a rumour, he went ahead and released his statement on social media. The tour is called Paul McCartney Got Back, and it is a series of American-only tour dates. Yes, us Europeans will have to wait further, as well as everyone else in the world, I suppose. But um, in the press release, Paul said, I said at the end of the last tour that I was going to see you next time. I said I was going to get back to you. Well, I got back. <laughs> well done there, Paul. Uh, obviously, the title is a pun on the highly successful Peter Jackson's Disney Plus's The Beatles Get Back, yada, yada, yada. And let's just quickly run through the dates. We've got Spokane, Seattle, Seattle again, Oakland, Los Angeles, Fort Worth, Winston-Salem, Hollywood, Orlando, Knoxville, Cycross, Boston, Boston again. Oh, um, it appears the show, a second Boston show had been added quite recently. Baltimore and East Rutherford, New Jersey. Wow. A new Paul McCartney tour. I mean, all the same questions run through your head. How is his voice going to sound? What's the set list going to be? Are we still going to get the explosions, the acoustic set, the solo set? Is he finally going to change things up? Who knows? My theory, my instant uh, leanings is that since he's been away from the touring scene for so long, I mean, at least for him. Uh, he's probably going to do a very classic Paul McCartney set list. It's probably not going to be anything that rewrites the formula. Um, you know, he's going to want to give the uh, fans who have been without him during COVID something special. Normally when Paul does a US tour, it's followed shortly by some other tour dates worldwide. So we've just got to cross our fingers and hope for the best in that regards. But my God, for, like, you know, folks, some of you have been contacting me on the Twitter and you've been talking on uh, some of my posts and stuff. And the amount you lot are spending on tickets is absolutely insane. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for the whole day out. You know, a couple of thousand dollars on tickets and parking, travel, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, we all love Paul, but my God, I love living in, in England and the fact that you know, there's probably only three or four venues you can only play in, and they're all a two, three hour journey away from, including walking from a train station to the venue itself. And even when I paid for my tickets when I saw Paul back in 2018, it was only a couple of hundred pounds, like maybe like $500 max for the two tickets. Yeah, please, folks. Drop me an email at pornkindypod at gmail.com. Let me know your Paul McCartney ticket stories for the Got Back Tour. Or even, you know, ridiculous amounts you've paid uh, and ridiculous efforts you've gone through to see shows of previous tours. I'd really be interested to see what the difference between the, especially the American mindset and maybe the European mindset in how much we are willing to pay and travel to go see Paul. Like, if I had to go to France to see Paul, I wouldn't bother. I genuinely wouldn't bother. It's not worth enough to me, especially now that I've seen him as well. But, you know, maybe you're one of these people out there who just needs to see him 
as many times as possible. And if you are one of those people, more power to you. Though, I wasn't being totally honest in our next bit of news. He has announced at least one gig here in the UK, and that is Glastonbury 2022. Yes, he's going to be headlining the show this year on the main stage. Uh, I'm sure a couple of my close friends will be going to see him and not enjoying him. They're not particularly big Paul McCartney fans, but I'm sure they'll let me know all about it. Though, the real reason I'm interested in this is that I'm wondering whether it's going to affect that Charlie Lightning documentary that we haven't heard from in a while. Maybe that documentary is going to incorporate the fact that the last Glastonbury gig was cancelled and then we had COVID and then Paul's going to come back with this one. Maybe it's going to have more of a rousing, you know, sort of enlivening ending to it, you know, with Paul championing coming back after this pandemic, that kind of thing. Very interested to find that out. Indeed. But yeah, that's the news for the day, everyone. It's just lots of stories about Paul arranging to play more music. It's wonderful. You know, he's in his eighth decade now and he's still pumping out the tunes. He's still doing it reasonably pretty damn well. Still got the same touring band. It just warms the cockles of your heart, doesn't it? And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some really badly recorded mobile phone footage of it in the future. Anyway, enough of the news, on with the plugs, get in contact with the show, let me know your ticket woes, talk to me about the Got Back Tour at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com, I'd love to read out your correspondence here on the show, haven't had any emails in a while actually, anyway, for daily updates, follow us on our Twitter page which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or Nothing written content, check out our blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Check out the YouTube page as well for all of our episodes of Macca in Your Attic, our side series where me and a guest go through their Paul McCartney collections. We've got at least about between 25 and 30 episodes of that on YouTube now, which is, you know over a day's worth of bonus Paul or nothing content. If you haven't checked that out yet, make sure you do right new. If you want to help out the show right away, though, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening on. You know, whether it means you are subscribing, leaving a thumbs up, a like, giving us some stars or even a comment, it all works together to help boost the show and give us more exposure and blah, 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 blah. You you know the shtick right now, folks. Though, if you want to help out the show directly, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon is a platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. You know, whether you've been enjoying the show, whether you're appreciative of the work I put in whilst working a full-time job, or, you know, maybe you just want to chuck a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month just because you think I am so gosh darn charming, then yeah, Patreon is the place for you. Though, It's not just a fundraiser. You do get your money's worth. You do get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to all episodes of Mac in Your Attic. You also get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. Of course, I record all of my uh, guest episodes on Zoom now. And for example, last week I uploaded part three of Flaming Pie, my conversation with Dr. Duncan Driver. And that episode's still not going to be out for another two weeks, so... You know, if you want to go and check out that right away, it's a good three-hour chat, then 
consider joining the Patreon. You know, even if you just join for a dollar a month, you get that. How does that not sound like it is worth it? You also get instant access to lost and bonus episodes of Paul or Nothing that will never be released. You get all of the scripts I use for the show as well. And I've also started doing an exclusive Patreon vlog series once a week. It is completely off the cuff and barely edited, but it's not in the kind of standard Paul or Nothing script. Uh, you know, I, well, in fact, that I don't use a script. And I've essentially just been talking about topics that probably wouldn't be totally appropriate for the show or wouldn't be worth doing an episode on. Um, the first episode I did on the McCartney Half Speed Masters. That was a lot of fun. Then part two last week's was a look at my Paul McCartney 7-inch vinyl collection. And this week we've been looking at my Paul McCartney 12-inches as well as some bonus albums, that kind of thing. So if you're a fan of all things vinyl and collectibles, I mean, if you're a fan of Paul Nothing, you'll definitely love this, then yeah, go ahead and check out the Patreon page for the bonus weekly vlogs. I, I, I do have more substantive topics coming up in the future that aren't just me going through my vinyl collection and reviewing each item, but you know, uh, the vinyl reviews are taking a lot longer than I anticipated, so you'll just have to wait and see for that. But before we can start this massive episode, I do have to thank my wonderful Patreon family, people including Jack, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, who recently upped his donation, thank you very much, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Right, folks, this pie is getting a little bit hot, and we don't want it to be flaming right away, so let's take it out of the oven and crack on with the episode. Okay, folks, we're going to start off this episode with what I consider to be the most educational elements of these part ones, as I get to learn just as much as you do. And it is a segment I like to loosely call a quick catch-up, with very little emphasis on the word quick. With this, we're going to take a look at all the stuff Paul did between Off the Ground and Flaming Pie, both personally and professionally. And you know what? We have a fuck ton to cover, so let's just dive right in. The first aspect of Paul's life that had certainly put him in some good graces with the fandom by the time we get to him recording Flaming Pie was his second successful, quote-unquote, massive world tour, a.k.a. the New World Tour in 1993. Okay. The next song we're going to do is a title track, and this is called Off the Ground. Yeah. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm actually planning to do an episode with good friend of the show, Dylan Seavey, on this tour and its subsequent album, Paul is Live, right after we do part three of this show. So, rather than having that episode be bogged down with the details, I thought it would be best for me to do a reasonably detailed version of events here and now. Also, we covered the first world tour on the Off the Ground episode, so it's got a nice little bit of symmetry there. It all makes sense. It was clear with the 1989-1990 world tour and with the small 91 unplugged summer tour that McCartney had clearly caught the live music bug once more. And so it should be no surprise that he would want to carry on with it, especially considering how successful those two had been and how warmly the public had received him upon his triumphant return to the stage. And so the wheels were put in motion and Paul, along with the same band from last time, plus new drummer Blair Cunningham, set about putting the tour that would be even bigger, more far-reaching and spectacular than the last. Of course, this would be the last time he would play with this particular lineup and the last tour that would feature the lovely Linda. But they were still going to go out with a bang. Though, I just want to point out before we begin that the New World Tour is quite literally the worst title I've ever heard for a tour like this. Like, we had the World Tour, and now the New World Tour. How lazy is that? I mean, couldn't we have had a pun on the New World Order or something like that? I don't know, it just always bugged me. Anyway, this was Paul's second proper solo tour, and a chance for him to visit a bunch of locations that he never managed to visit the last time he went around the globe slash exploit new markets. The first leg of the tour was in February of 93 and was comprised of a brief duo of European shows in Milan, Italy and Frankfurt, Germany. The second stint is what he called an oceanic affair in the March of that year with nine shows across Australia as well as one in Auckland, New Zealand. This was the third and second time McCartney had toured in Australia and New Zealand, respectively. Then we come to the first primary North American run of the tour from April to June of that year, which comprised of 20 shows across the United States and two shows in Canada. This was followed in the September and October of that year by a second European leg of the, of the tournament, which had nine shows in Germany, three shows in the UK and France, two shows in Austria, Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands and Spain, and a single solitary show in Belgium. Sorry, Belgium. When describing one of the Italian gigs, McCartney's main publicist at the time, Jeff Baker, reported one fun little story that I'd like to share now. I watched Paul try to leave the stage after Hey Jude. He couldn't. He couldn't get off, because all of Florence was up on its feet, yelling the chorus of Jude over and over again. They would not shut up. Bye-bye, he said. Sod you, Macca, we're singing on. See you next time, he said. No way, we're still singing, matey. You're not getting out of this one, Macca. And he couldn't. He had to start Hey Jude again. He had to kick the band back into the song and whack off a load more bars before they'd let him leave. Then, in mid-November, you had the Asiatic run of the tour, which was basically just Japan, with three shows in Tokyo and two in Fukuoka. Then, in late November, you have one incredibly brief section of the tour in North America again, which was basically just one location, a.k.a. Mexico City in Mexico, which just had two shows. And finally, in the December of that year, around 10 months since the start of the tour, 
we have the South American leg of the show, with three shows in Argentina, two back in Brazil, and one in Chile. To put the length of the tour into perspective, it was so long that four members of the crew and team met their respective partners and spent enough time with them that they were wed by the end, and a total of 14 tour babies had been born. When describing the sheer enormity of the scale of this tour, the spin doctor slash reporter slash publicist Jeff Baker said the following, You have to see this to understand. You have to understand the hugeness of this show, and seeing the last tour doesn't give you that perspective. The last tour was big, sure. It was record-breaking, yes. But the last tour was about getting back. This tour is about being huge. You're not getting the point. The stage is the biggest anyone has ever sung from. It's a backdrop for monstrosity, changing image and shape like a child's whim. At one moment, cathedralistic for Let It Be. The next, it blows itself up on Live and Let Die with explosions that are simply blitzkrieg. Where's the Stuka? And the next, it's a 360-foot-wide flashback as Sergeant Pepper kicks off into the scenes that Timothy Leary never imagined in his dodgiest moments. Quite simply, it's massive. As mentioned by Baker there, the stagecraft and stage decorations for this tour were also something entirely new and magnificent to behold. The tour incorporated painted stage sets, at the time the world's largest, running 16,400 square feet, as well as projections designed by regular McCartney collaborator Brian Clark. Now, I really cannot overstate how elaborate and massive these sets and projections were. Paul and the band basically had these giant house-side panels behind them on the stage that, you know, was already dwarfing them, but they were nothing compared to the border of the stage. So, you know, you've got this huge cutout, it goes all around the stage that borders them. And it's several stories in the air. And, you know, those gorgeous frescoes of stained glass church windows, pictures of Paul and the band, as well as some very tug-of-war-esque designs, is something that I've never seen before. Something that I don't think I've seen since, really. It must have cost a pretty penny indeed, but... It's Paul. It's surely worth it. I know that he wanted to give the fans something they would not have been able to experience on the last tour, and he most certainly did that. Whilst this tour did get some negative comments in the aftermath, you know, post-mortem, being there must have been the most incredible thing ever for hardcore fans or even the casual Beatle fans, you know? As we know, McCartney is a fantastic springboard to deliver new technologies and showbiz thingamabobs, and he continued that here by delivering stages that will never be experienced again. You know, they inspired a near-religious sense of awe in his audience. Speaking of Brian Clark, like the last tour, he also designed the promotional material as well as the tour booklet. Now, pressing on... As I did last time with the 89-90 World Tour, I just want to talk about how successful or not of a business venture it was. As before, the facts and figures only really exist for the North American part of the tour, but again, one can extrapolate certain guesstimations based on these Americana statistics. The problem was, 
His manager, Richard Ogden, urged Paul to play smaller venues and eschew the massive stadiums from the last tour to ensure that every show was sold out. Which didn't happen, sadly. Despite Paul performing to over 1.7 million people in concert over 20 shows with venues averaging around 40,000 people, with some as low as 31,000 and some as high as 53,000, Paul still noticed that a worrying number of shows featured obvious areas of empty seats. This also happened earlier in the Oceana leg of the tour, with stadiums built for 50,000, housing only 30,000. Still, with every US gig for a single night's work, a million dollars was made in ticket sales, with the Anaheim Stadium and Giant Stadium peaking at around 1.7 million. Throw in some merchandise and some tour booklets, and you're adding another 100,000 here or there for every show. However, things didn't go exactly to plan. Unlike the last tour, all of the budgeting was done by an outside company, which meant that they didn't have their own biases. Though, for this one, Ogden decided to do everything in-house at MPL, and all of the predicted revenue, rather biasly, was based on the last tour. The key difference here was that the last tour had been following a 10-year-plus hiatus from touring, and a far more successful album than that of Off The Ground. This meant that Paul and MPL had invested way more in the stagecraft than he probably should have, and those grand stage elements, as I mentioned, were not cheap. To compensate for this, they were originally going to have the tour be sponsored by Volkswagen, which made sense as their most famous car is the Beetle, also featuring on the Abbey Road cover, and they would have offset all of these costs. However, the lovely Linda objected to such a company sponsoring the tour as it would go against their ecological ethos, and so they would have to find a last-minute sponsor. They went with the German electronics company Grundig, who were the main funders of Lipper, as well as the company who made the tape machine, which has the only recording of the pre-McCartney quarryman back in 57. Paul was clearly not too pleased about this venture, as it tied his pet project, Lipper, into the main body of his career. And you can tell how reticent he was by the fact that he only signed this contract after the tour had started, four days into the tour, actually, backstage in Frankfurt. So, the only choice was to add more dates to the tour. Now, whilst I don't know which of these dates were the added ones, I still know that it barely covered their assets and their assets. Because although the tour had made around $14 million by the end, after paying everyone involved and, you know, covering all their costs. They only came out with a £2.6 million profit for MPL. A fortune for some, but for a multi-million dollar company, it was a paltry effort and barely seemed worth it in the end. Still, that hardly seemed to be the point from the beginning, for when he was asked about whether he even needs to tour at this point in his career, McCartney replied, People say to me, Paul, what is there left to work for? But the point is, I don't do this for the money anymore. Or even the honour, or the applause. I just do it for myself. That's what's left to work for. Always. Of course, with this period, and the album that they were touring with, being a very ecological one, and animal rights one in nature, it should not be a surprise for anyone that, for this tour, Paul and Linda pledged their undying allegiance to Peter 
aka the people for ethical treatment of animals. This resulted in some of the giant projections during the show being comprised of animal testing footage as well as unsound farming practices. You know, fun for the whole family. Interestingly, the food that was available for fans to eat during this tour was also seen to by the McCartneys personally, as they instated the Eat Your Heart Out craft services to provide vegetarian-friendly only meals for fans. Whilst not a part of the official tour, on the 16th of April, Paul did an extra show at the Hollywood Bowl in celebration of Earth Day. Paul performed a shortened 17-song version of the New World Tour set list, adding Mother Nature's Son and Blackbird to the affair. For the finale, all the artists that were there with Paul that day joined them all on stage for a roaring rendition of Hey Jude and with a huge eruption from the crowd as Ringo Starr walked out on stage to sing the chorus shoulder to shoulder with his former partner. Going back to the set list for a moment, for this tour it was, like the previous one, a far more Beatles-heavy affair, as he was now more comfortable with his Beatles past and able to celebrate it slash profit off of it. As with the world tour of 89 and 90, the new album was also to be promoted, aka Off the Ground, and so that meant other solo stuff and Wings was truly pushed to the back of the proceedings. Said set list, for the most part, with some minor variances in some territories, looked something like this. Drive my car, coming up, looking for changes, jet or another day, all my loving, let me roll it, peace in the neighbourhood, off the ground, can't buy me love, Robbie's bit, or his little tribute to Chet Atkins, good rockin' tonight, we can work it out. I lost my little girl, or and I love her. Ain't no sunshine, or every night. Hope of deliverance. Michelle, biker like an icon. Here, there and everywhere. Yesterday, my love. Lady Madonna. Come on people. Magical mystery tour. Let it be. Live and let die. The long and winding road, though only in some cities. Paperback writer. Fixing a hole, though only in some cities. Back in the USSR. Penny Lane, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, plus the reprise, Band on the Run, I Saw Her Standing There, and Hey Jude. Very interesting to see that we still don't have the classic um, Abbey Road medley and the end, ending the uh, show there. Be a while before he would do that. Now, despite coming out in a profit, just about, you know, with pleasing as many fans as they did and giving them a tour that they would never forget and songs that they hadn't heard in so many years and selling as many tickets as they did. 1.7 million people is nothing to sneeze at, folks. There were still a lot more criticisms lobbied in the way of the New World Tour than anyone could have predicted at the time, such as the fickle nature of certain elements of any fan base as massive as Paul's. Of course, as you just heard, there's an awful lot of off-the-ground material on this tour, at least compared to how much modern albums get the share of his shows. And I've read a lot of reviews and criticisms of this tour in the sense that it exists purely to plug off the ground, as if new tours should never plug the new album. Like, there is no more of off the ground on this tour than, say, Flowers in the Dirt got on the last tour. And it's clear that the poor reception 
by some people of this tour is purely based on the poor reception of Off The Ground. You know, that's the foundation of such comments, nothing else. Like, if Off The Ground had been full of songs that everyone loved, everyone would be like, oh, this is the greatest tour ever. But because people unfairly deride that album, apparently this tour is, for some reason, more fickle, more hollow and more calculated like it it's so stupid you plug the new album you do and yeah there was probably a point in my life where i was like oh does he have to plug everything on the new tour and you know i may still say the same about upcoming albums but it's part of the business folks let's just you know grow up a little bit also this was the period where the stereotypical McCartney setlist was truly cemented into the wider pop culture mind. What was also drilled into the minds of fans was the idea that these setlists are mostly unchanging and rigid. I mean, the same was true for all the Wings tours, but it was at this point in history that the criticisms came to the forefront of the McCartney discussion. You know, people were like, oh, does he have to play the same show every tour? I've bought two tickets for two different shows and he played the same thing both times. Wah, wah, wah. Come on, folks. Paul wants to give everyone the same show. He wants to give them all the same experience. You know, he, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Here's a quote from Hamish Stewart in Fab and Intimate Life of Paul McCartney where he explains what might be going on here. When he knows... That something works, he sticks to it, which is true of other artists. It's mainly a different audience every night, so I think you can get away with it. And yeah, that's the point, folks. If you are buying multiple tickets for the same tour, don't complain if Paul's playing the same music. Like I say, he wants to give everyone the same experience. He wants to give everyone their Hey Jude moment. He wants to give everyone, everyone their Live and Let Die moment, their Yesterday moment. It's going to happen. What also came up during these critical discussions was not just the songs themselves, but the way he played them. Whilst we in 2022 are more accepting of Paul's wishes to not reinterpret any of his material, like Bob Dylan or David Bowie, it was clear that the fans in 1993 were not as charitable and were expecting him to shake things up. But Paul most certainly did not do that, you know, Again, he's adamant to give everyone their Hey Jude moment. We're not going to get wild reinterpretations of the songs here. We got a little bit of that on the Unplugged tour and on uh, MTV, but that's about as revisionist as you're ever going to get. Also, rather notoriously, this was the tour when the famous Linda isolated vocals tape leaked to the public. This is a clip that does the rounds on social media every year, which features Linda's vocals from a Hey Jude harmony that, to be frank, does not sound very good at all. And it is used by haters of Linda as the poster child for how she could supposedly not sing and had no talent, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Now, this is totally unfair, as I imagine Linda could barely hear herself sing when compared to the controlled environment of the studio, and it required Paul himself to reassure her, with him stating, It was a horror. I had to remind her that the Stones also have tapes out like that. It's very easy to isolate harmonies. You just have to take it out and it sounds horrible on the radio. She had to be very strong, as it's not easy to be made fun of. When Linda herself commented on the fracas, she was quoted as saying, I don't really give a damn what people think. 
I've always wanted to meet the people responsible and stick my fingers in their eyes. And finally, we come to the album that came from this tour, Paul is Live. Not only was this album not that warmly received by those who did buy it, with it routinely being described as non-essential, you know, with the fact that it was the third album of live material in three years, probably not helping, but with this lack of excitement and lack of momentum and lack of positive reception, it led to it being the most poorly selling Paul McCartney live album of all time. So yeah, folks, that was the new world tour. That is everything I believe you need to know and probably a little bit more than you needed to know. And I think the best way to sum it up will be saying, you know, at its best, it was a massive tour that maybe failed to live up critically to the last world tour while still offering something new and exciting and unforgettable and giving us a bunch of new live songs that we never heard of before, as well as Paul visiting places that he had never been to before and thus spreading the love all over the world. And at its worst, it was an overproduced, very mixed bag. <laughs> you know, maybe if he'd have spaced these two tours out a little bit more, maybe people would have been a little kinder to it. But there's very little here, really, that justifies even calling it the New World Tour. You probably could have just gotten away with saying it was a massive extension of the first one. Of course, whilst the New World Tour was massive, it really wasn't anything compared to the next topic we're going to cover here today, today, here, here, today. The true big difference between the release of Flaming Pie and Off The Ground is the fact that Paul had co-released a certain little project called The Beatles Anthology. You may have heard of it. anthology was the first true push at Beatles nostalgia in film and music form. It culminated in a three-part six-CD collection and an 11-hour, eight-episode-long TV documentary series that together catalogued the entire Beatles story and recording history. The albums, Anthology 1 through 3, included dozens of unheard alternate takes of Beatles material that offered a then unparalleled insight into the Beatles recording process. Likewise, the series featured a glut of unseen Beatles material and hours of interview footage of the Threetles that gave unparalleled insight into the Beatles' lives, relationships, and arc. 
Now, I mentioned this in the review episode with Dr. Duncan Driver, but the legacy of the anthology looms over Flaming Pie like a spectre, and I do have certain issues with how much it gets brought up in relation to Macca's solo album, and I do kind of wish it was brought up as its own thing. And my original intent was to make this as brief as possible, and I'm looking at it now, and this segment is actually longer than that previous New World Tour segment, so hey-ho, what are you going to do? Anyway, the anthology began under some rather strange circumstances indeed. Apple manager Neil Aspinall had been collecting footage of the Beatles since the 60s, and had been collating and editing them together into a little 16mm film called The Long and Winding Road. It was nearly taken off to America by then-Beatles manager Alan Klein, who apparently wanted to turn the project into a commentary on the 60s overall, but Aspinall avoided that by simply hiding his version of the film and instead pointing to the dozens upon dozens of unprocessed film cans, which Klein could just not be asked to deal with as much as he wanted to steal a ready-made film. After this, Aspinall surreptitiously created a rough draft of the film, sent a copy to each of the Beatles for posterity, and then the project was more or less put to bed. Now, despite so much effort being put into this project thus far, and so many edits supposedly making the rounds, the reason that it never came together until the 90s, as Paul explains, is just that the timing wasn't quite right. He said... The fact that we were arguing for so many years over business, we couldn't have done it. Once we started to resolve our differences, now that we're chatty and mates again, we began looking at the CD, the t-shirt and the cookbook. This quote is another classic example of Paul telling the truth and somewhat fibbing through omission, as one of the biggest issues around this time was the fact that he had somehow negotiated an extra 1% in royalties over the other Beatles' estates, with Capitol Records and this resulted in Yoko, George and Ringo suing him. Also, to counter this point, one of the most widely circulated rumours slash accepted truths about this project is that the only reason it was put together in the first place was for the money. Now, whilst both George and Ringo both needed cash at this point in their lives, it's easy to see why people would see George being the one who would really need to be motivated by outside non-Beatle factors to get this thing made, as he was the least Beatly of the surviving Threetles by some margin. Still, George and Ringo had earned far less than Paul after the breakup, and both had rather expensive habits. With George, it was cocaine and flop film production, whereas with Ringo, it was the property market and a jet-set lifestyle. Many saw George as the representative for John in this situation, and as such, he had to be a curmudgeon not just for one, but for two. And since John was the other major personality in the Beatles, the one to be there to counter Paul, George was the one who had to step up and be that counter himself, shooting down a lot of Paul's suggestions and making sure that Paul would not overbear the project, as it were. For example, his first caveat for joining this project is that it would no longer be called The Long and Winding Road. Of course, that's one of Paul's songs. And instead, to have given it the more generic title of Beatles Anthology. Though, we must always leave room for the idea that 
all of this is just a case of George being a grumpy goose in general, uh, you know, and giving Macca another dig due to old wounds being reopened. Though Paul still managed to get one of his own crew in a rather high up position, with Jeff Wanfor co-directing the project alongside Bob Smeaton. Jeff Wanfor is another name that we will hear across the Flaming Pie era. Still, eventually, all three surviving Beatles, dubbed the Threetles, had officially signed on by 1994, and a years-long series of interviews began with one Jules Holland, formerly of the band Squeeze, and for us British people, the host of his yearly Jules Holland New Year's Hootenanny, always a favourite in my household, doing the interviewing. In the documentary itself, you can see all three of the Beatles age and change their facial hair, and so you cannot ignore just how long this whole project took to come together. All three of them would still deliver incredible content for the documentary. Paul would give wonderfully showman-like interviews and would mug it for the camera constantly. George was always there to offer a slightly more sour side to the events, but was always able to deliver a wry turn of phrase when called upon. And finally, Ringo was as charming as ever, but he really did have to give his all to recall memories lost to years of alcoholism. Of course, Ringo wasn't the only one battling his memories. Being that all these events took place 30, sometimes more, years ago, the recollections of the Threetles all varied from one degree to another, from minor differences to major ones. Though, conversely, the series did provide an opportunity for new revelations to open up between the surviving members. Series co-director Bob Smeaton recounts one such specific example. Paul and George were sat in the editing suite, with Ringo looking at the last programme. George was on screen talking about the split, and Paul turned to George, sitting next to him, and said, I didn't know you felt like that. Is that how you really felt? George said, Of course it was. Continuing this theme of narratives, at the time, the anthology was, and some might argue still is, the de facto definitive version of the Beatles story, but... Something that was always going to be a part of this and all future Beatles-approved narratives was the idea of whitewashing. This means that because the parties were involved, they would be reluctant to give the whole truth and instead give a pre-approved version that would put everything in the best sort of light. And knowing what we know now, especially since you know Peter Jackson's documentary came out, it's quite clear that there was a whitewash with the Beatles anthology. You know, this wasn't for the minority of fans who wouldn't be able to proliferate this kind of material. This was for general audiences. And whilst there were revelations the show over, there were still glaring omissions. And, you know, we know about it. We've read the books. We know the history. But obviously, watching a TV series takes a whole lot less time than reading dozens of books to get a full picture when talking about the prospect of a whitewash, Paul said the following in Club Sandwich number 76. I don't think there was a whitewash, although I was concerned that there would be, mainly because I thought that there would be certain people who would really feel like it was me doing the whitewashing. Strangely enough, I'm probably the only person who didn't, but it's not a heavy whitewash. I pretty much let all my stuff go through. All the stuff I said got through. As a result, despite the story giving us insights that we'd never heard before. There were elements that were obviously left out for even more obvious reasons. For example, 
Ringo's alcoholism was never mentioned because that would just be bad taste. George and Ringo leaving the band was completely brushed under the rug as not to bring down two further episodes. McCartney suing the other three members at the end was never even mentioned. Drug use was touched upon but never focused on. And infighting was kept to a brisk minimum. Again, when addressing these issues, Paul said, There were certain little stories that were removed from the anthology because, one, they might offend people or give the wrong idea, and two, we wondered, is it absolutely necessary to have the warts and all version? I mean, any fan worth their salt in my mind, no true Scotsman argument, would say, yes, we do want the warts and all version, and it's clear that even during this anthology era, Paul was still doubtful of the invincible nature of people's fandom for the Beatles like you know we could have found out that Paul John George and Ringo you know murdered a village of people in Yorkshire and we still would have loved them all the same like come on they are pretty unimpeachable in our minds and we know that stuff that they did wouldn't come even close to that you know it might just be they slept around a bit or they were unfaithful or they did a bit of drugs Ooh, uh you know is that really the worst thing ever definitely worse things have happened since with other artists so it's strange that they never made that jump as it were strangely enough though one of the compromises paul did have to make was with yoko ono and the origin of the flaming pie story the naming of the beatles and what would go on to be the naming of the Flaming Pie album. Again, this is taken from Club Sandwich number 76. So Bill Harry wrote a piece called On the Dubious Origins of Beatles, and the basic line was that we all laughed at it, something like, I had a vision and a man came unto me on a flaming pie and said, You shall be Beatles with an A, and so it was. So we took this to be goon humour and a sort of a biblical joking, and God said unto thee, come forth, and he came forth. You know, that's very much the humour that was going around Liverpool at the time. Now, it turned out that we couldn't have this in the anthology because Yoko believes that John did really have a vision. I'm very friendly with Yoko now, so I don't want it to come across like a snide thing, but it generally intrigues me that she thinks this. And the way I tried to put it was, you can say, I had a vision, and people will go, OK. You could say, a man came unto me. OK, it's starting to sound a little biblical, but it's all right still. On a flaming, yes, this is okay. It's even more biblical. Now, if you'd have gone to the word chariot, we'd be all right. Or if you'd gone to the word phoenix, we'd, we would be all right. But the word pie is a dead giveaway. A man came to me on a flaming pie. I know in my mind that John didn't have a vision about this. But the way Yoko puts it, if it's okay for Paul to dream yesterday, then it's okay for John to have a vision. So these are the things that kind of cropped up. It's only a difference of opinion, so it doesn't matter vastly. We've tried to make our point, she's made her point, and we've arrived somewhere in the middle. Now, despite the different memories and the different narratives being told at the same time in the same documentary, the whole thing was still surprisingly thorough, and the legend of the Beatles had never quite been told in as much earnest detail before. One really can sum up the Beatles anthology documentary series based on the three final quotes from the surviving Threetles. Ringo gave the most sentimental, peace and love style answer. It was magical. There were some really loving, really caring moments between four people. A hotel room here and there. A really amazing closeness. 
Four guys who really loved each other. George gave a typically more acerbic response to balance the narrative. The fans gave us their money and their screams, but the Beatles gave their nervous systems. And lastly, our man Paul gave a surprisingly simple response that seemed to echo John's sentiment at the start of Anthology 1, CD 1. To me, the Beatles were always a great little band. Nothing more, nothing less, for all our success. When we sat down to play, we played good. In what I have seen be described several times as almost an afterthought, the Beatles also would choose to release several CDs as part of the project to go along with the documentary. The idea was that they would dig out the rarest, most valuable, most revealing Beatles studio and live recordings that would simply blow people's minds and show them something they'd never heard before. The anthology CD producer and project leader was none other than George Martin, and from the 22nd of May 95, he began the lengthy process of re-listening and remixing the vast number of Beatles tracks from the archives. Additional research and sleeve notes were produced by renowned Beatles scholar and author Mark Lewison, who had collaborated with EMI and Apple on a number of other projects, as well as having worked for Paul at NPL and written for Club Sandwich for many years. Other familiar faces from this time to come back included Klaus Vormann, their Hamburg chum and designer of the Revolver album cover. He was brought back to produce the artwork for the three CD album covers, which had their own controversy because he cut off Pete Best's head and put in Ringo's, but that's a story for another time. And another returning face was Derek Taylor, the Beatles' former press manager, who came out of retirement to join the product to act as head publicist. Rather interestingly, though, the plan was that throughout both the documentary and the CDs, no wives or girlfriends would be interviewed, nor would they have much to any input on the content itself. But, as we touched on earlier, this would mean appeasing Mrs Ono. Oh no. Speaking of wives and girlfriends, around this time, on the 19th of January, the Threetles and Yoko found themselves all under one roof at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony in honour of John being inducted as a solo artist. Paul gave a very heartfelt, very nostalgic, very pro-John and Yoko-centric speech, which undoubtedly touched the heart of Ono greatly. This was not the only time Paul had thrown a bone her way recently, as he had also defended her and John against the salacious claims made in Albert Goldman's biography The Many Lives of John Lennon a few months prior. With several wounds being clearly scabbed, if not fully healed, Yoko not only agreed to mostly not interfere with the anthology in any way, but she also gave Paul several unreleased tapes of John Lennon's material. Yes, despite being the stay-at-home dad, John, rather like Paul, was still not above doing a little bit of home recording and putting down a few demos here and there, now and then. Originally, the plan had been for the Threetles to simply record some incidental music to go along with the docu-series, you know, the stuff that you kind of see in the doc itself, you know, with them doing Raunchy and Blue Moon of Kentucky. But now with these tapes from Yoko, the band decided that they might as well give it a proper go and finish off John's material and release it as a Beatles song proper. 
Though the band weren't stupid and they knew that they would be open for scrutiny with such a move as Lennon was not there to personally sign off on any of it. When in the studio though, it was agreed that they would record as if all four had signed off on the project in the same spirit of collaboration. You know, they would pretend that John just gave them the tapes. This is a similar mindset change to the Sgt Pepper era, where they, again, had to create a narrative that was plausible enough for them to work outside of the norm, and in this case, work guilt-free, as Paul describes here. We said, let's pretend John's gone on holiday. He's rung up and said, we've nearly finished the album, but there's this song that I've kind of liked, but I haven't finished yet. Will you finish it up for me? I trust you. I mean, even with this forethought, the criticism still arose, and McCartney was quick to rebuke them, again in Club Sandwich number 76, stating, There was some comment I read in the press recently, where someone wrote, In the mood Lennon was in when he wrote this, he certainly wouldn't have wanted McCartney to get his mitts all over it. You know, that old chestnut. In actual fact, the journalist has got his history wrong. What he means is, in the mood John was in a couple of years before he wrote it, he might not have wanted McCartney to get his hands on it. So, basically, what Paul is saying there is, is that he knows Paul better... So, what Paul is basically saying there is, is that, you know, for all our supposition and theorising, we don't know what was really happening behind closed doors, and Paul knows John better than we ever will. And, for all we know, John was looking at this song as possibly being either something that he would have wanted to record with Paul or wanted to have recorded with Paul as the Beatles in a proper, you know, reunion. Maybe Paul's not saying that directly. Uh, maybe he's just saying John wouldn't have minded Paul working on it because they had repaired their friendship, you know, something like that. Anyway, you'd be forgiven for assuming that George Martin would have been the one to produce free as a bird as well as real love however that isn't the case at all rumor has it i mean george martin said this himself that he they considered him too old to do that but he, he was also busy with the other beatles stuff around that time you know doing the other cds for the anthology and so instead they brought in a certain jeff lynn into the studio to help them produce of course, Jeff Lynne, the founding member of ELO, the man who tried to carry on the spirit of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the Magical Mystery Tour with the ELO, the Electric Light, the Electric Light Orchestra. And he was also a founding member of the Travelling Wilburys. So he was definitely known to George. And whilst Paul would go on to work with Lynn, during the Flaming Pie era, this was mostly a move to ensure that someone involved in this process was in George's camp, as opposed to, say, George Martin, who was clearly at least Paul leaning, if not totally, on Paul's side. You know, Paul already had George Martin on the CD and Jeff Wanfor as a director, so it would make sense that George would bring in his own guy, A, to make himself feel more comfortable, and B, to make sure that Paul wouldn't, quote-unquote, take over the whole project and give George more of a say-so in the final product. I mean, the fact that George had more of a say-so here is why we don't have Now and Then 
as a final Beatles Threatles song. When talking about Jeff Lynne, Paul said the following. George knew Jeff Lynne. I was worried that there might be a bit of a wedge there, but in fact, it wasn't like that. It was great. Jeff worked out really well. As I've said to him, a lot of people are very wary of your sound. I said, you've got a sound. And he said, oh, have I? He's always got a way of working, but it's very similar to some of the ways that we worked in with the Beatles. I mean, clearly Paul enjoyed working enough with Jeff Lynne and, you know, feeling that he had enough of a Beatlesque sound and style to his recording so that for him to have actually brought him on to the Flaming Pipe project to begin with. So clearly, even if Jeff was ostensibly, you know, someone to prop up George and make George feel more okay with this whole process, there obviously wasn't any tension or any fracas with them. So it definitely worked out to be the right move in the end. Now, I could put all of the sessions for Free as a Bird into my own words, but Paul himself actually went into great deal about these particular sessions, and so rather than truncating it down, I've decided just to keep the entire quote here in its original form. Again, from Club Sandwich 76. We should bear in mind that, of course, this is from Paul's perspective, so it might not be entirely true, but this is the truth that he wants us to know about. He says, First of all, George and I tried to put some acoustics on it and play along with it as it stood, because we wanted to be faithful as possible to the original. But because he was doing a demo, John went out of time a bit. Unless you're working to a click track, you don't concentrate on tempo when you're doing demos. And because he was trying to find the song on the demo, the middle eights weren't filled out lyrically. His vocal quality was nice, and he'd put funny phrasing effects on, which there was no getting rid of. But it was a nice effect, actually. Very 60s, very evocative. I think it's one of those things that gives the record a nostalgic feel. But eventually, because George and I had to keep looking at each other and giving signs through our eyes, like, he slows down here, he speeds up here, it became difficult. It became quite annoying to try and keep up with the speed changes, so we decided to take another approach. We had to isolate John's voice as best we could and then lay it back onto the tape to a click track that would not be heard on the record, but would be strict tempo. Jeff Lynne and the engineers did that. Once that had been done, we were able to play with it because John was now perfectly in time, and now there were just little gaps where he'd sped up or gone out a bit. After that, we did acoustic guitars, and I learned John's piano part. I'd been studying it a little bit of a week before we did the session, and Jeff Lynne had studied it very hard and showed me one or two little interesting variations that John had put in there that I hadn't picked up. Then I played it. John and I had a very similar piano style because we'd learned together, which meant that we now had a voice and a piano separate and could get control over them. Then I put bass on, which I kept very simple. I didn't want to do any of my trademark swoops or get too melodic, just because I wanted to anchor the piece. I did one or two little tricks, but they're very subtle. Like, I used my five-string bass, which has got a very low string on it, and I saved the low string till the tune does the big key change in the solo, and it really lifts off from there. So, instead of doing the same bass note, I went right down to my second lowest note on the instrument. Then, Ringo did some great drumming on it, and Jeff Lynn, being very precise, made sure that every single snare was exactly correct, and he and the engineer, Jeff Emmerich, got a really great sound. And then I and George did the harmonies, which was finally when Ringo was chortling with glee in the, in the control room, saying, it sounds like a Beatles record. It really did. It really started sounding like a Beatles record, and we became more and more convinced that we were doing the right thing. 
Then George started working on his guitar parts, and he did the secondary guitar part between the lead and a rhythm, a sort of arpeggio rhythm, you'd have to call it. He came up with some nice little phrases that are very subtle on the record. I turned to hear him about a third time through, and then he finally came up with this slide guitar. I told Jeff that I was slightly worried about this, because it might get to a bit like My Sweet Lord or one of George's signature things. I felt like the song shouldn't be pulled in any way, and it should stay very Beatles. It shouldn't get to sound like me solo or George solo or Ringo for that matter. It should sound like a Beatles song. So the suggestion was made that George might play a very simple bluesy lick rather than getting too melodic. And he did. And what he played was almost like a Muddy Waters riff. And it really sealed the project. I think, I still think, that George played an absolute blinder because it's difficult to play something simple. You're so exposed. But it was fantastic. And Jeff Lynne and Jeff Emmerich got a great sound on him. And so that was it. We did the end bit, put a little extra vocal things on it, and then the ukuleles, which was a tip of a hat to George Formby, who George was particularly fond of. And I like George Formby a lot too. He's a great British tradition, and John's mum, Julia, used to play the ukulele, so I suppose that was a point of contact too. Then we got the phrase of John's to turn backwards, laid into the mix, and I thought, that's it, it really sounds like a Beatles record. I'd said to John and Yoka that if they didn't like it, we wouldn't put it out, but it was great, and it all worked. The single of Free as a Bird sold 120,000 copies in its first week, reaching number 6 in the US and number 2 in the UK charts. Now, that does sound pretty good on paper, but when you think about it, this really isn't the return to form that I'm sure many of them were hoping. You know, it barely achieves any of their prior success. But fortunately, a more substantial anthology product fared far better and proved that the Beatles were indeed back with a vengeance. The anthology series itself was first sold as five episodes and made its way to 102 countries worldwide and received acclaim in every territory it touched. Not only that, but the first episode was a massive success, an unbelievable success. When the special aired in the States on ABC, an estimated 47 million people were watching. ABC had a 51% advantage over NBC and a 77% advantage over CBS. Here in the UK, it was shown on ITV, not the BBC sadly, with 14 million people tuning into the opening episode, helping ITV achieve its biggest Sunday primetime viewing share to date that year. Yeah, the show kind of dipped off in terms of viewership as the series went on, but a very expensive video and subsequently DVD box set was released shortly thereafter and proved to be a very lucrative venture indeed. Anthology number one was issued as a double CD and a triple vinyl collection. The worldwide release date was the 21st of November 1995. And again, another success. It was a global commercial success. It became the first Beatles album to enter the US Billboard 200 chart at number one, with 855,473 copies sold. However, the chart does not monitor sales in supermarkets, wholesalers or drugstores, and Capital estimated that at least another 200,000 copies were sold in these outlets. The release also broke the record for the first week sales of a double album. It remained at the top of the US chart for three weeks and was certified platinum in America after six weeks. Anthology One also topped the charts in Australia, Canada, France, Germany, the Netherlands and New Zealand. In the United Kingdom, it sadly stalled at number two behind Robson and Jerome's eponymous studio debut album. Anthology went gold in Germany, France, Switzerland, Denmark, Italy, Spain, Austria and Chile. 
It's platinum in Japan, New Zealand, Belgium, and Hong Kong. It went double platinum in Australia and eventually in the UK, quadruple platinum in Canada. And in the USA, it went octuple platinum, which is eight times platinum. But the success was not just commercial. During the 39th annual Grammy Awards that were held on the 26th of February 1997 at Madison Square Garden, the Beatles won three Grammys. They won the Grammy for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with a vocal for Free as a Bird. They won Best Music Video Short Form. And they won Best Music Video Long Form. So yeah, two of them were like te- like technical ones. But still, the Beatles anthology had now proven to be both commercial and critically successful. Though I'm not going to do a full deep dive on what every single newspaper wrote because I still kind of plan to do an episode on the anthology in the future in even more and greater detail, but yeah. (laughs) In stark contrast to the New World Tour, the Beatles anthology was resoundingly positive and its impact is still felt throughout the Beatles fandom today, whereas the New World Tour's impact in the Paul McCartney Tour is not really felt at all. The anthology truly was an unprecedented product, and no other legacy band has been able to come close to its insight, its breadth, and most importantly, its triumph amongst its fan base, general audiences and critics alike. Is it perfect? No. But that legacy can never be underrated or underestimated, and the music on the CDs is pretty incomparable. I mean, the only thing that could be more impactful would be a second anthology that plugged up all the gaps of the originals, but with George having passed away and the other two Beatles in their 80s now, it seems highly unlikely that we would be getting any more insights or any new music for that matter. Though, in terms of this episode, in terms of Flaming Pie, the important things to take away from this are the following. Paul was coming off an objective commercial and critical success. He finally, truly became fully comfortable and embraced his Beatles legacy. He had made a shit ton of money and needed it less than ever. He had a tremendous amount of fun recording and felt rejuvenated. And he'd been introduced to the studio work ethic of Jeff Lynne. And with that, everyone, the two main segments of this episode are out of the way. We're only over an hour in. And we can now move on to the many other smaller elements going on in Paul's life around this time. Though for Paul, in the 90s, his smaller moments would still be the crowning lifetime achievements of regular folk. Moving on, on to one of the most esteemed moments of his whole career, actually, as an Englishman, the moment when he was knighted by Her Majesty herself, Queen Elizabeth II, for his services to music. Our Macca, now 54 years old, became Sir Paul McCartney in a centuries-old ceremony of pomp and solemnity at Buckingham Palace in central London on the 11th of May, 1997. Right, for all of you people outside of the UK... Let me just quickly point out that there are several honours that confer you as a knight with various titles and ranks and yada, yada, yada. And the specific honour that Paul was receiving here was that of Order of the British Empire. And he was now at the rank of Knight Bachelor. So yeah, as I said, there are lots of ranks and titles and stuff, but that doesn't mean you're a sir. However, now that Paul had been knighted as a bachelor by Queen Elizabeth II as a member of the Order of the British Empire, showing that he'd gone one step beyond his duties, he was now officially able to be dubbed 
Sir Paul McCartney. He was now among such other entertainment giants like Sir Ian McKellen or Sir Anthony Hopkins, who are basically treated like borderline or super low-tier members of the royal family. MPL staff, though, were quick to point out that he himself would not be calling himself Sir Paul, and this lack of formality would also make its way into the subsequent Flaming Pie press release. Sadly, Linda, who was fighting breast cancer at the time, was unable to accompany him. But he was still joined by three of his four kids at the palace, and Paul still managed to make light of the situation, quipping, I would have loved the whole family to be here, but when we heard there were only three tickets, we had to draw straws. And, you know, one cannot help but feel pangs of joy and sorrow in one's heart when you read a quote like this, when Paul was talking about the award. He said, The best thing about it is that when me and Linda are sitting alone on holiday watching the sunset, I can turn to her and say, Hey, you're a lady. It's a giggle because you get to make your girl a lady. Although, she was always to me anyway. Oh, oh my God, that's so heartfelt, that's so touching. Oh, oh, breaks your heart, doesn't it? Anyway, on the day, swaths of fans waited outside in a scene reminiscent of early Beatlemania, screaming their heads off as McCartney swept through the gates in his chauffeur-driven limousine, and he, of course, answered with a classic wacky-macker thumbs aloft. Having never really considered that he would ever be up for such an honour, McCarty admitted that he was very nervous at the ceremony, but said it was a great experience, and I quote, This has been one of the best days of my life. Today's fantastic. There is a blue sky and it's springtime. My mum and dad would have been extremely proud, and perhaps they are. I would never have dreamed of this day. If we'd have had that thought when we started off in Liverpool, it would have been laughed at as a complete joke. I'm proud to be British. It's a wonderful day. It's a long way from a little terrace in Liverpool. Of course, this was not the first royal honour that Paul had ever received. In October of 65, McCartney, along with the other three Beatles, were each awarded an MBE, so he got an OBE this time around, Order of the British Empire. In 65, he got an MBE, Member of the British Empire, and that was much to the shock of the British establishment at that time. Rather famously, Lennon returned his MBE in 69 as a war protest, so I'm not sure he would have totally approved of Paul's quote-unquote selling out here again. <laughs> and I know that George and Ringo probably would have felt like it was a bit of a, a jab at their perceived lesser careers, especially since you know they would be officially seen by the Queen in that way to be less substantial. Sadly, George would never receive the honour, but at least in 2017, the venerable Ringo Starkey would also be knighted for his services to music and charity. Next up, we have a little subject that I, again, wanted to cover sparingly, as this is another deep dive future episode, and that is Paul's own radio show, Ubu Jubu! It's Ubu Jubu! It's Ubu Jubu! Yes, folks, as a Paul McCartney podcaster, nothing brings me more joy than the knowledge that Paul was basically doing, more or less, the same thing that I'm doing in the 90s, only with a bigger budget, bigger audience, and a bigger scope. After all, it was wide screen radio. It was wide, it was wide screen, screen radio. radio. Let's play the jingle. 
Some folks say ooboo. Some folks say jubo. But I say it was jubo, mama. was a radio series hosted by none other than our kid Paul. The program aired on the American radio network Westwood One, which was based in New York City and owned by CBS. Sadly, no longer exists. Anyway, it had a 15-episode run, with the first one being broadcast during the weekend of the 27th of May 1995, and the final one during the weekend of the 1st to the 4th of September 1995. Not sure how a four-day weekend works, but that's what the stats say, and maybe, you know, it's an American holiday or something. Forty stations were rebroadcasting the show at first, but word quickly got around, and in just two more weeks, some 160 radio stations, representing 44 of 52 states in the USA, were beaming out Ubu Jubu, making it the number one syndicated show in the entirety of the USA at the time. The format of the show was a very loose affair, with... Paul interweaving songs by other artists, his own songs, including alternate takes, cold cuts, live tracks and sound checks. He would also discuss his music, the origins of some songs, backstories to his life, that kind of thing, as well as spontaneous little improvs in the studio, with many a little corny ditty being recorded on the spot with his guitar, a guitar that he would normally be caught noodling on during all of his spoken word segments. The idea of Ubujubu goes all the way back to 81, meaning that Paul was considering a radio presence from the very moment he became a fully-fledged solo artist. I mean, which would have been a very interesting proposal indeed. Maybe we, we, we could have gotten uh, a radio show from Montserrat or on set of the Give My Regards to Broad Street production. Who knows? But yeah, Eddie Puma or Puma a producer at Capital Radio in London met with Steve Shrimpton, Paul's then-manager, and Joe Reddington, one of Paul's promotion guys at the time. And whilst official talks were had for Eddie to produce the series, it wasn't until 14 years later in 1995 did it finally get going. However, elements that would become regular staples of the 90s ubu-jubu, such as reggae highlight, world music, live spot, record collection and studio rehearsal were already mentioned at this early stage. It should also be noted that the idea for a radio show called Ubu Jubu must at least go further back to at least 1978, as Paul was already recording rude studio home demos of the iconic jingle for the song back then. Also, folks, I do need to point out that in one of my recent Cold Cuts episodes, I talk about a song called Reggae Hillite, yet... Looking at this now, it's reggae highlight quite clearly, so maybe that song has further ubu connections. Just another 
Paul and I think branded mistake there, perhaps. The name itself, though, Ubu Jubu, goes even further back than that. Paul's interest in all things Ubu can be traced back to the Monday, the 10th of January, 1966. The Beatles were in between albums, in between tours, and enjoying their first real break away from work. And at 7.30 that evening, whilst driving from London to Liverpool, Paul switched on the car radio to what was then known as the BBC Third Programme and heard an hour-long production of Ubu Koku, also called Ubu Cookholded, a play which only came to light after the writer Alfred Jarry died in 1907. The broadcast captured Paul's imagination to the extent that he went to London's newest bookshop catering for underground releases and ordered a copy for himself. This happened to be Indica Books, a venture run by Paul's friend Miles, Peter Asher and John Dunbar, which Paul had helped set up financially in the first place. It was also here, in Indica's downstairs art gallery, that John Lennon met Yoko Ono the same year. Speaking of Beatles, it's worth pointing out that in this play, Ubu Koku, the word pataphysical is used, and so Paul would give this play a shout-out, its first shout-out, only a couple of years later, in Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Now, as of yet, there is no official, complete CD or album collection of Ubu Jubu, and being that these radio shows regularly featured previously unreleased McCartney material, they became highly sought-after bootleg material, with collections of taped episodes being a common sight at conventions until that thing got regulated to private hotel room transactions. To this day, only the mighty Sir Paul Rue uh, YouTube channel has any of these episodes available, and even then it's less than half of the total number of episodes, with them having missing parts due to copyright and stuff like that. But if any of you have a cheeky mp3 file of any of these shows, please drop us an email at paulmccartypod at gmail.com. Tracks from the Ubu Jubu radio series also officially appeared on McCartney's Flaming Pie-related singles. On the track listing, they were listed as singular tracks, though they are essentially just tasters of full episodes, being 10-minute edits and scrambles of various demos, rehearsals, live and unreleased recordings. There were six of these songs to collect, and they ensured that you had to buy two of each individual single to collect them all. In 1997, though, Best Buy released an exclusive CD titled Ubu Jubu Ecology. The CD, an edited version of Show 5 in the radio series, was banded as a one single 41 minute 52 second track. It was limited to 3,000 copies and featured the majority of Paul's ecologically-minded tracks from his solo career, including Linda's own composition, Cow, which we'll mention later. This release was also available on YouTube, albeit, again, in a somewhat truncated version. Yeah, folks, Ubujubu is just awesome. It's a really fun part of Paul's career at this point. Um, I'm not sure if he recorded all of them in New York or if he recorded loads of sound bites and stingers all at once and then they were edited later. I'm not sure how much of a hand he had in the editing either. That's all stuff I will probably cover in a future episode where I go through all of Ubu Jubu. But if you haven't checked any of it out, if you haven't been on YouTube, if you haven't checked out the Flaming Pie bonus tracks, do yourself a favour and do it, because it is a wonderful insight to the man's mind. It really is, and there's just so much good music. 
The next major musical moment for McCartney around this time was the composition and release of Standing Stone. Yes, the release was technically after Flaming Pie, but you know, I like to cover the whole year these things were released and it was recorded during the same kind of period. I don't want to cover it in the next episode because we did Liverpool Oratorio in the last one. So, you know, it all kind of fits. Anyway, Paul clearly had still a passion for classical compositions, with Standing Stone being his second full-length release of original classical music, which was issued in late September of 97, shortly after Flaming Pie. The world premiere of the performance was held at the Royal Albert Hall on the 14th of October 97, and overall the, the entire thing was a, re a resounding success, probably more so than a lot of other McCartney releases around this time, which is quite interesting, with Standing Stone topping the classical music charts for six weeks and even managed to get on the regular US Billboard charts uh, with one week at what, number 194, which is pretty crazy, actually. Commissioned to be part of the celebration of EMI's centenary, the Standing Stone project was composed from a long poem McCartney had authored, and the whole thing was performed and recorded by the 80-piece London Symphony Orchestra and a 120-member choir, also being conducted by Lawrence Foster at Abbey Road Studios. Unlike Liverpool Oratorio, the new project was not an operatic performance of a story or narrative, but purely an instrumental one, though, as I mentioned, it did employ the use of a choir. For the first time in his career, McCartney actually used a personal computer and software to help compose this album, and you can see evidence of this from the In the World Tonight documentary. Standing Stone was engineered by John Kurlander and mixed and edited at Hog Hill Mill Studios. It was released on compact disc, which included a 48-page booklet. The booklet reprinted McCartney's full-length original poem that inspired the project, an essay by Andrew Stewart, and reproductions of two paintings by Paul from 1997 named Standing Stone Story and Standing Stone Story 2. A 2LP vinyl edition limited to 2,500 copies was also released and the main image on the front of the album cover is actually an image that you can see on the inside of the McCartney 1 album. Yes folks, I did kind of do that one quite quickly but I haven't even begun to do McCartney's orchestral stuff yet and I do want to give it its fair due so keep your ears to the ground we will be covering Standing Stone in the future. Moving on and it was around this time that we saw the birth of another of Paul's biggest arguably most impactful babies which was the launch of Lipper, the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts on the 30th of January 1996 and its grand opening was conducted by Queen Elizabeth II on the 7th of June the same year. Lipper, as described in Sue's letter in Club Sandwich number 77, was a hall of excellence for the UK's performing arts and it would be a hub of developing the UK's culture and those who guide it. Essentially, Lipper would be a university, a school. It's where people can learn acting, they can learn singing, songwriting, musicianship, anything to do with culture. So any of those annoying hippies you see in coffee bars doing poetry circles, yeah, it's that kind of crowd. And what better way for Paul to give back to the city that birthed him and birthed his success than by creating a whole new generation of artists? 
So, on the last episode, we talked about Paul getting funds together to refurbish the building that would become the Lipper building. But I think I got something wrong in the last episode and maybe implied that Lipper was established. Well, it wasn't. Five years ago, the building was a derelict, dark, decaying husk of a structure. And Paul steps in to save it from ruin. Now, this magnificent pre-Victorian edifice, where Charles Dickens once lectured and the Beatles went to school, was now gloriously alive, bright and airy, restored with great taste, and, as previously detailed, at tremendous cost. The launch was a grand affair, with many influential figures in local government and education in attendance, as well as many of the prospective first-year students... Conservative Prime Minister John Major and Opposition Leader and future Prime Minister Tony Blair also both send letters of congratulation for the project. When speaking of McCartney's contribution to this new esteemed institution of education in Club Sandwich number 77, Mark Lewison said the following. The thing about Lipper is that it is tangible. People may choose to dislike a Paul McCartney song or criticise his career for goodness knows what reason, but Lipper is bricks and mortar. It is a genuinely intentioned, real monument for the benefit of all that is surely beyond any criticism. Paul did not have to bother to do this. What other major celebrity has done it? No fingers are necessary to aid the count. The fact is, this is a significant tribute to Paul McCartney's character and endeavour, and... If all he has done in his life has led to this, then it has been worth every moment. Going back to the New World Tour for a second, that tour also served as a fundraiser for Lipper, where during the American shows there was a special $1,000 ticket. Ticket holders were able to attend sound checks where Paul might come over and say hello, though this was not guaranteed, as well as being able to watch the show from a set of exclusive elevated seats. This was controversial amongst fans uh, in certain areas of the fandom, with one group holding aloft a $1,000 Lipper scam banner at one show when Paul did not come over to them and say hello during the sound check. Another gaffe during this period came in the form of Paul embarrassing the future headmaster of Lipper and embarrassing himself. Mr. Mark Featherstone Whitty yes, that is his actual name, was in Germany scouting for first-year students and he was invited backstage by Paul. In Philip Norman's biography of McCartney, he recounts this little tale. Paul suddenly put me on the spot about my background in education and theatre. Go on, he said. Do some Shakespeare. I tried to explain that I was going to be the principal, not the head of acting. Supposedly during the tour, McCartney may have had doubts that star quality and performance could even be taught, with that unease being fed by the Christians, one of the Liverpoolian bands he'd met during the recording of Ferry Across the Mersey in 89, who argued that it had to be taught on the job. But by this point, he had invested too much and couldn't back out, and Lipper was invested in the tour as well. Um, but, you know, for anyone wondering if any famous alumni have been turned out of Lipper, I mean, the list is actually pretty thin in terms of household names, but when you go down the list and you realise that, you know, anyone who is in theatre or, or anyone who is in acting or stagecraft or costume design is, has pretty much been healthily stopped almost entirely by ex-Lipper folk, then you realise what this thing is doing. They're not meant to be turning out TV stars and music stars and people who end up on YouTube, though there are a few exceptions Indie band The Wombats, US comedy rocker Liam Lynch of 
United States of whatever fame, and British presenter Dorno Porter were names that I all recognised. But if I had any class or culture, then I'm sure I would have spotted more. Well, what has Paul's involvement with Lippa been since? I mean, Paul has taught masterclasses at the university there, and every year, to a rather large amount of fanfare, he is always at the graduation ceremonies, handing out all of the, you know, degrees and doctorates that they put out. You know, imagine, you know, not only have you got your degree after working hard for three or four years, but Paul McCartney gives it to you also. How fucking cool would that be? In addition to his master classes, um, this year, during the lockdown, he actually gave, over Zoom, one-on-one teaching mentoring sessions with eight students from Lippa. So let's not assume that he's this distant figurehead that just claims all of the uh, glory. He actually puts his money where his mouth is, and and he does give back. And it seems at least that his worry that star power can't be taught has waned somewhat. Pressing forth, and we're going to wind the clock back to 1993 for a second, as this quick catch-up segment tends to be ordered in what I consider to be importance rather than chronologically. And we have the release of 16 Paul McCartney albums. Wait, what? When did this happen? I can hear you ask. Well, it wasn't 16 new albums. This was the re-release of Paul's entire solo discography. But... What would inspire such a move? Is this an, an, an early archive collection? Not really. This is more about formatting. This is the dawn of a new era, the age of the CD. The Paul McCartney collection was a series of 16 remastered CDs by Paul McCartney of his solo and wings albums, with most of them getting previous B-sides added as bonus tracks. You probably know this series, even if you don't recognise it straight away. These are the Paul McCartney CDs where the album artwork is shrunk to be about half of the CD case size with a large white border around it. You know, this is the release where Back to the Egg has daytime, nighttime suffering, wonderful Christmas time and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reggae, but doesn't have Good Night Tonight. You know, it's that one. Tony Wadsworth, marketing director at Parlophone in London, explained the re-release project as thus. It is because the CD as a format has penetrated at a massive rate since Paul's catalogue CDs were initially released. Quite simply, there are a lot of people out there now with CD players who didn't have them five years ago, and we're trying to reach that audience. Also, the technology to remaster and make older recordings sound fresher has developed, and so we're taking the opportunity to use that modern technology to get the best sound possible out of the existing master tapes. Sound familiar? At the same time, we're also giving people the opportunity, both the media and the public, that is, to reappraise Paul's post-Beatles catalogue. His body of work with the Beatles is so legendary that people tend to overlook the excellence and the success of his solo work. And we're trying to put that right. So, it's two things really. It's renovation and it's reappraisal. Plus, we're happy that we've managed to freshen up the visual side of the CDs by retaining as much as possible, if not all, of each album's original vinyl packaging. In this way, we've added many elements to the CD packaging not previously available on the format. When speaking of the bonus tracks, or the complete omission of them in the case of Tug of War, Wadsworth continued, 
Paul had felt that the final decision about which bonus tracks went on these new CDs and cassettes, and he felt that Tug of War should stand as it was, without the additional tracks that were suggested, because the effect might be diluted by adding something out of context. Hmm. Anyway, rather than releasing all 16 albums at once, the albums in the collection were released separately, with the first eight released on the 7th of June 93, and the remainder on the 9th of August the same year. The first half was from McCartney to London Town, and the second half was Wings Greatest to Flowers in the Dirt. As per the seeming rule of this period, a box set of all 16 discs was subsequently released exclusively in the Japanese Beatles fan club. The reissues did not include McCartney's most recent studio album, Off the Ground, and were not released in the United States. Moving forward, another significant release from this period was the Barry Miles book, Many Years From Now. For the three people listening to this podcast who don't know what that book is, it is to date the only official biography of Paul McCartney. According to Miles, in a rather similar case with Paul Muldoon and the lyrics book, actually, the core of Many Years From Now came from 35 taped interviews held between 91 and 96. McCartney and Miles began working on the project shortly after McCartney's 1989-90 world tour, and whilst you'd be forgiven for assuming or hoping that this would mean that it may focus on more recent events in his life and the solo years, that's not the case. Of course, it's mostly just Beatles stuff, along with a mahoosive section about London life in the 60s, which I find very skippable. Since its release, critics have pointed out how the book is essentially a response to the deification of Lennon following his death in 1980, and despite McCartney's intro in the book claiming the opposite, the whole thing has a somewhat self-serving, revisionist tone. This is the book that first put forth the avant-garde Paul theory, and it champions his role in the Beatles, even if it comes at the expense of Harrison and Starr, who barely get a look in. Still, rather like the anthology documentary, it was an unprecedented release, which did offer a previously unavailable level of detail and access to Paul's life, music-making process, thoughts, feelings, and psyche. I actually meant to have done an episode on this with Anthony Rattuno and Owen Ling a while back, but I'm still yet to have finished reading it. Next up, and we have the first of three philanthropic charitable ventures from Macca. Of course, being as wealthy as he is, and as grateful as he is to be where he is, he does actually give a lot back to the world, even outside of Lipper. Something that I'm sure was a factor in his various royal titles also. The first of these was known as An Evening with Paul McCartney. This was a fundraising event at St James Palace, London, in the presence of Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, on Thursday the 23rd of March 1995, in aid of the Royal College of Music. The orchestral night included performances from Paul Elvis Costello, the Brodsky Quartet, soprano Sally Burgess and baritone Willard White. Tickets were limited to 300 sent to the college's subscribing members by invitation only, requiring a donation of £250 each. Paul was the master of ceremonies and began the evening by announcing, Your Royal Highness, my lords, ladies, gentlemen, and the rest of us, thank you for your generous support for the Royal College of Music. I'm here to support the young musicians of the future, so thanks for coming and caring. We have a varied programme tonight, and thanks for all the performers for showing up sober. 
He then announced the first artist, describing her as an ex-student of the Royal College of Music, the 22-year-old daughter of Dmitry Alexiev, performing a new piano piece that I wrote. The main performance of the evening was the world premiere of Paul's composition, A Leaf. That's a leaf. This was performed solo by the previously described Anya Alexiev. The 10-minute solo piano piece had specifically been written by Paul for the occasion, and when speaking about premiering his new piece at the RMC, he was, and I quote, glad to be given the chance to help young aspiring musicians. In today's competitive world, it is very difficult for people to get a good start. I hope this concert will help give musicians of the future a much needed boost and the rest of us an enjoyable evening. A Leaf is described as Paul McCartney's second composition in the classical idiom, and it's actually broken down into seven parts, with Adante Semplice, Poco Piu Mosso, Allegro Ritmico, Andante, Allegro Manantanto, Moderato, and Adante Semplice 2, whatever that means. A Leaf was released on cassette and CD on the 21st of April 95 and was even published in sheet form by Faber. An extended version, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, appears on Working Classical, McCartney's 1999 album. The whole set list looks something like this. You had A Leaf, then you had Drinking Song from the Liverpool Oratorio, you had Long Time Ago, performed by Willard White, singing baritone and Michael Pollock on piano, then you had The, the Dodger by the same two again, then you had Tre. Conejos from the Liverpool Oratorio with Willard White on baritone, Sally Burgess, uh, soprano, Paula Compiano again, and Maria Castronari on double bass. Then you have Do You Know Who You Are by Burgess uh, Castronari again, and Neil Thornton on piano. The same three did Can't Help Loving That Man. Then we had Harold in Islington, performed by the Brodsky Quartet. I Almost Had a Weakness by Elvis Costello and the Brodsky Quartet. Then the two of them again would sing The Birds Will Still Be Singing. Then Paul McCartney and Elvis Costello together did One After 909. Then they did Mistress and Maid. Then Paul McCartney with the Brodsky Quartet and Michael Thompson on French Horn did For No One. The three of them would then do Eleanor Rigby. Then McCartney and the Brodsky Quartet would close out with renditions of Yesterday and Lady Madonna. Part two, in a look at McCartney giving something back to the world, would see him going back in time and revisiting some of his own material once more. Because what makes better sense to raise money than targeting Beatles fans? On the 4th of September 1995, 33 years to the day since the Beatles were in Abbey Road to cut their first 45 single, Paul returned to Studio 2 to help Paul Weather record a new version of the Beatles' Come Together for their War Child charity album, Help. Note that there's no exclamation point there. Noel Gallagher of Beatles tribute band Oasis was also on hand, and the group informally became known as the Smokin' Mojo Filters, which of course is a reference to a lyric in the song. In true Beatles spirit, the track was taped and mixed in a single production session, and just five days later, on the 9th of September, the album was already in stores and sold more than 70,000 copies on the day of release, which instantly raised more than £2 million for the Bosnian War appeal. The Smoking Mojo Filters version of Come Together was also released as a single 
and reached number 19 in the UK singles chart. And for our final charitable deed from McCartney for this episode, we are going to actually go past the release of Flaming Pie, kind of like Standing Stone, but again, same year, so fuck it. This is his appearance at the Music for Montserrat Benefit Concert. Yeah, this was a charitable rock and roll show held on the 15th of September 1997 at the Royal Albert Hall. The event was organised by Sir George Martin to raise funds for the Caribbean island of Montserrat after a major volcanic eruption by the Soufriere Hills volcano earlier that year. Of course, Martin was the founder of Air Recording Studios, which had a base of operations on the island of Montserrat, and he saw firsthand the destruction that the eruption had caused and knew he was able to do something about it by rallying some of Rock's greatest acts to help out. Arranged and produced by Martin, he managed to rope in our boy Paul, of course, Phil Collins, Carl Perkins, Jimmy Buffett, Mark Knopfler, Sting, Elton John, Eric Clapton, Ray Cooper, Midjour, Arrow, and many more, all of whom had once recorded or produced on the island. So, unlike other charity gigs, all the acts had an emotional or nostalgic, shall we say, stake in the outcome. Additionally, as mentioned in Club Sandwich issue number 84, every member that was there that night, every artist, not only worked for free, but also covered their own costs. That would be equipment, transport, accommodation, that kind of thing. You know, everyone actually did care. Sadly for Carl Perkins, this was his last major live performance, as he died just over four months later on the 19th of January, 98. But he still gave a bloody good final show here, folks. Proceeds from the tickets and DVD sales went towards restoration and support for the island. The concert itself raised 1.5 million and all these funds, I mean, I don't know how much was raised from the DVD, but what they were mostly used for was to help the funding of a building of a new cultural centre in Montserrat. On its completion in 2006, George Martin gifted the centre to the local community, which is still in operation today. Ironically, though, what hadn't been refurbished was... Air Studios itself, which had been devastated by Hurricane Hugo in 1989, just after the Stones had recorded Steel Wheels. The setlist for the show looked something like this. Phil Collins performed Take Me Home, Arrow and his band did Hot Hot Hot, Carl Perkins did Blue Suede Shoes, Jimmy Buffett did Volcano, Mark Knopfler did Local Hero, Brothers in Arms and Money for Nothing, Sting did Message in a Bottle and Magic, Elton John did Your Song, Live Like Horses, and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Eric Clapton did Broken Hearted. Then he was joined by Mark Knopfler again to do Layla. And then he ended with Same Old Blues. Then Paul did Yesterday. Then Golden Slumbers, Carry That Way, and The End. And then Paul and all the other artists did an encore on stage of Hey Jude and Kansas City. Though not Kansas City, hey, hey, hey. Right. Keeping on the theme of islands... It would not be a Paul or Nothing episode without Macca working on at least one animated musical feature which no one really remembers all that much, if at all. Though, I do. The project was called Tropic Island Hum. 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 Welcome to our island, glad you came to call. 
Now you've made yourself at home, you're welcome to us all. We are simple people, why are we this way? This is what we always say. It's the way that we bang on the bongo. It's the way that we bang on the big bass drum. The way that we sing in a song of bass drum. As we know, our kid has a penchant for investing loads of money into mostly self-serving animated vanity projects for kids. And this is no different. Well, okay, there's one major difference in that Tropic Island Hum uses characters and scenarios made up completely by Paul and Linda rather than using an existing intellectual property like Rupert the Bear. The story concerned William the Squirrel, or Wirral, to his friends, fleeing, pursuing hunters by jumping into a hot air balloon that's being piloted by Froggo. Now, does the story stop to explain how, in a world of realistic human hunters, that a frog can access a hot air balloon or even pilot it without opposable thumbs whilst also wearing cl- clothes? It's very strange. No, of course it doesn't do any of that. It doesn't get bogged down. Instead, they go high in the clouds, wink, wink before then coming into a storm and crashing onto the titular tropical island. The mayor, the bison, shows them around the island, explaining the woes of hunting and introducing them to a cast of characters, before then taking them to the party where they sing the titular tropic island hum. Whilst during the performance, Wirral meets Wilhelmina and falls instantly in love. Suddenly, a group of gate-crushing, tribal mask-wearing monkeys threaten to spoil the party, Wirral then sorts them out by knocking them out with some of their, like, magic powder or something, or gunpowder. It's, it's very strange. And the song continues to its close. The film then ends with Wirral and Wilhelmina kissing before cutting to black. Yes, folks, before we carry on, that is the very same Wirral the Squirrel from another McCartney work. And we actually haven't got around to covering High in the Clouds as of yet on this show. But I was pretty shocked when I watched Tropic Island Hum to discover that it stars the earliest appearance of Wirral the Squirrel, the protagonist of High in the Clouds. It even begins with him escaping hunters in a hot air balloon. And I don't know if like Tropic Island Hum is meant to be the same narrative as the book, or whether he's recycling ideas, or whether this is part of some sort of Wirral the Squirrel cinematic universe. I mean, you know, fuck, it's on the DVD with Rupert the Bear, so maybe it's part of the Rupert universe, who knows? Though, when speaking in Club Sandwich number 79, Jeff Dunbar did say something rather interesting. In the very early stages, the idea was to link up Tropic Island Hum with Rupert and the Frog Song, with the balloon flying over Rupert's cottage and away into a new adventure, but the ideas have grown a lot since then. The centrepiece of the film, which you just heard earlier, is the title track, Tropic Island Hum, which right away I will proudly declare is far better than We All Stand Together by a country mile. The song is sung by all the animals on the island and is completely charming from the moment you hear it. It's full of recognisably McCartney-esque flourishes and touches and silly little voices that lets you know it's still him. And it's easily one of his crowning achievements in terms of music for children. Recorded all the way back in 87, the song was engineered by Jeff Emmerich, 
featured an arrangement by George Martin, who also did the incidental music for the short, and, oddly enough, backing vocals not from Linda. And instead, the singing voice was done by jazz singer Marion Montgomery. Now, this is not really a name that I'm all that familiar with, but a cursory Google search does indeed show me that she was indeed a real person and a decent vocalist by all accounts. But it's so strange that Linda would help to do the voices and write the the story and the scenarios, but not sing as Wilhelmina. I mean, the character played by Paul kisses her at the end. You know, it all just would have made sense. But lack of Linda aside, the song is literally one of my favourite Paul McCartney songs right now, and I cannot wait to cover it in a future Cold Cuts episode. Once completed, Tropic Island Hum would be a 13-minute short film, and would therefore be unable to be shown as a, you know, a film on its own. Though, in the way that Rupert the Bear and the Frog Chorus was shown in front of Give My Regards to Broad Street, apparently, and I do put the emphasis on apparently, as I can't find any major sources that confirm this, like Wikipedia doesn't say it, IMDB doesn't say it, Tropic Island Hum was apparently shown as the short film before screenings of the 1997 Disney animated movie Hercules. Hercules! I imagine this would have most likely been in Europe, as I cannot picture American kids watching this before their favourite Disney cartoon, but I may very well be wrong. If you know any different, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Now, in the film, the song lasts about six minutes, but on the 20th of September 2004, a shortened three-and-a-half-minute radio version was released with We All Stand Together as the B-side. Now, while she might be forgiven that thinking that this shtick would have passed on by and not made much of a ripple at all, it actually spent three weeks on the UK Top 40 chart, peaking at number 21, which, for what it is, is not half bad at all, and actually did better than some of McCartney's proper singles at the time. The full animated short was also subsequently released on DVD by Miramax Films as one of the segments on Paul McCartney, Music and animation. The the DVD, of course, also includes the Rupert and the Frog song, as well as Tuesday, a project I'll probably be talking about on the next episode, like the the next proper album episode, just looking at all the dates. But yeah, Tropic Island Home, folks, this is a topic that I wasn't particularly looking forward to covering, and now, now that I have, I cannot imagine life without it. I love this stupid little cartoon. Another project that kept McCartney as busy as ever over 94 and 95 was yet another cinematic digression, actually. As the creative force behind the Magical Mystery Tour, though, this can hardly be seen as shocking. It all started when Paul began pursuing contact sheets Linda had photographed of the Grateful Dead over 67 and 68, just before they kind of formally got together. She'd taken photos of the band in Central Park, New York, as well as private home photos of the dead in San Francisco. These shots reminded him of his childhood and an experience where he was bedridden with illness, as seen here. He says, By concentrating on a photo in the newspaper, I seemed to be able to make it move. Looking at the images, I got that feeling again. I thought, maybe I could make these four roles more interesting by making a film of the dead at the time, when not much footage existed. Now, Paul, please... Don't assume you can make Linda's work more interesting. It's perfectly interesting on its own. But that aside, can we just take a little moment to appreciate the fact that Paul is a deadhead? Like, how cool is that? I mean, 
I've never personally dipped my toe into that particular fandom. I know it's a passionate one, and I know that another dozen podcasts must exist in its realm. But how cool is that? <laughs> We've also got that um, Scorsese biopic of Jerry Garcia coming out with Jonah Hill starring. But, you know, it's nice to see that McCartney, once again, did something first. The first Grateful Dead film. So what Paul did was he filmed the prints on his own rostrum camera in a variety of styles and loaded the results once again into his computer, possibly the same one he was editing Standing Stone on, and set about editing it all together. The final product was called The Grateful Dead, a photo film, which had a runtime of about nine minutes and featured three of the Dead songs on its soundtrack. It eventually debuted at the London Film Festival in November of 1995 and went on to be shown at various film festivals all over the world, ending in a very well-received run at the 1996 New York Film Festival. And now, folks, since we've talked about everything that was going on in our Paulie's life, it's time to talk about what his other half was up to, the lovely Linda, or Lady Linda, should I call her now. And we're going to start all the way back in 1993, and in the December of that year, Linda announced a line of vegetarian frozen entrees as part of Linda McCartney Foods to be released in America under the name, the brand name, Linda McCartney Foods from the Heart. The range was launched in March 94 as Linda McCartney's homestyle cooking and was the first American company with a completely meatless line of food products. Products included ball-in-a-bag entrees, fettuccine alfredo, pasta provencale, provencale, pasta primavera, rigatoni marinara, Bavarian goulash, spaghetti milano, and chili con carne. And pre-plated dishes such as lasagna roma and burrito grande. In 95, American barbecue, Tex-Mex tostada, and traditional stew were added. The products also changed ingredients in August of 93, ceasing the use of TVP, texture vegetable protein, and switched to wheat protein. This was marketed as providing a more meat-like taste than other meat analogue brands. However, in 95, it was noted that the sausages, available internationally, were manufactured with TVP seasoned with parsley, which was a small controversy, I guess. The product range was expanded and improved in 95, coinciding with the brand's television commercial and opening of a dedicated factory in Fakenham. The new and updated options included beefless burgers, country-style Kievs, savoury burgers, crunchy garlic grills and vegetable cheeseburgers. God, I'm getting hungry now. In October 96, as part of the United Biscuits McVitie's Prepared Foods, the range was improved to reduce fat and sodium and increase protein levels. At relaunch, a total of 14 products were offered, which included pepperoni-style main meal pizza and modified existing offerings, including creamy garlic Kievs, cannellini, Linda's original stew and dumplings, chili con carne with mozzarella potato wedges, and farmhouse-style pies. God damn! Then we have the official return of Susie and the Red Stripes, in the form of a new song for the charity compilation album Animal Magnetism. That was written by Linda McCartney, not Paul McCartney, and a new face, Carla Lane. Lane, for those who live beyond Britain's borders, is the writer of some of the finest sitcoms on British TV, 
such as the liverbirds, the mistress, butterflies, solo, love and bread, the latter of which Paul and Linda once cameoed, as well as writing the Green Corner piece in Club Sandwich number 73. Carla and Linda shared a love of animals and a passionate hatred of man's abuse to its fellow earthly creatures. This passion was then taken into the studio with the recording of two songs co-written by the pair, The White-Coated Man and Cow. These were to benefit two laudable organisations, Peter, again the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and the Paws in Harmony Foundation, with Paws being an anagram for Performance for Animal Welfare. And yes, it turns out that the recording is indeed, uh, at, at least for white-coated man, credited to Susie and the Red Stripes, the same pseudonym Linda used to record Seaside Woman with Wings as her backing group, something I never knew. Of course, for this, Paul still helps out a little bit by playing the guitar and doing a couple of other arrangements. Now, whilst the album itself came out in 94 and had the likes of Linda Ronstadt and Chrissy Hind and other names that I really don't recognise, White Coated Man actually started out life seven years ago in 1988 as a poem, as Carla Lane recalls. I picked up my pen, suddenly, in a fit of passion, and wrote a couple of pieces, The White Coated Man and Cow, and happened to mention this to Linda and Paul. Linda asked to see them, and so I sent them to her, imagining that she was simply going to read them, but then she rang to invite me to the studio the following Monday. I went along, and the first thing I heard, when I got out of the car, were the wonderful strains of Paul playing a musical version of Cow. I thought, what a lovely tune. And then, when I went inside, I heard this wonderful music being set to my poems. I couldn't believe it. We then proceeded to have a wonderful day putting the tracks together. The finished recording produced by Susie and the Red Stripes and remixed by Eddie Klein and Alvin Clark, was arranged in a style not too dissimilar from another Susie track from Days Gone By, a.k.a. The Oriental Nightfish, and features Linda's lead vocal interspersed with spoken word verses by Carla. Again, I always thought that was Linda's voice, but that shows what I know. The result is a touching track that pricks the consciousness and tugs at the heartstrings. It's... Also, a result that greatly pleased Carla, who commented, I've been fighting against cruelty to animals for 15 years, and getting a message across in poetry is an important method, but getting it across in music is so much better. I just want to spread cruelty to animals is wrong, and the song does that very well indeed. When speaking of Cow, in the liner notes for Wide Prairie, Paul said, It's another collaboration between Linda Carla Lane and myself which, in this case, deals with the last days of a cow under a death sentence. The sweet innocence of the song made many of our friends decide to go veggie. Linda probably has done more than anyone else to bring vegetarianism into the dietary mainstream of our society, and made thousands of people ponder to wisdom of our cruel treatment of animals generally. Moving on from one noble cause to another, we now have a couple of calendars by Linda to help raise funds for the War Child charity. Now, you may recall that charity from earlier in the episode with Paul's appearance on the Help Charity album, and so it's clear to assume that both parties in this relationship were equally moved by the charity. The McCartneys also supported the charity by taking part in an exhibition in London, though I can't find anything on that specifically. Anyway, in 1995 and 1996, Linda produced two calendars, the 1995 one was monochrome, spiral-bound and for small desktop display, 
with the 1996 version being the complete opposite, as it was full colour and very large, perfect for wall hanging. Environmentally, it was right on the mark too, being printed on chlorine-free matte art paper with 50% recycled content. On a side note, after doing some research, I've actually found that there have been a bunch of Linda McCartney calendars that I've failed to mention on these episodes, so I will be sure to bring them up in a future episode when we go through Linda's art in a little more detail. Then there was another exhibition of Linda's photography work around this time. 26 of Linda's classic 60s photos from her book 60s, as well as lots of Summer of Love photographs by San Francisco journalists Robert Altman, Baron Wallman, Herb Green and Jean Anthony, were put on display at the Museum of the City of San Francisco right through the September of 1997. Coincidentally, the opening of the exhibit, which was on the 29th of August, coincided with the 31st anniversary of the Beatles' last performance at Candlestick Park, which was also in San Francisco. Proceeds from the sales of her photographs went on to benefit the free Summer of Love concert, festival and celebration in the October of that same year. And finally, we have the release of Linda's second cookbook. It was just six years prior that she dared to publish Home Cooking, the veggie cookbook that she wrote mostly as something to pass on to her kids or help the occasional person who was curious about a meat-free diet and unsure of how to cook it. At a time when, you know, vegetarianism was largely not a part of the pop culture. Linda's home cooking was massive, you know. It was sold everywhere on earth and became the biggest selling vegetarian book ever with like 350,000 copies sold. And now, six years on, Linda stepped back into the food revolution game with the publication of her second cookbook, Linda's Kitchen not to be confused with Linda McCartney's Family Kitchen, released last year. For those who remember, the first book was full of unhealthy coddling and middle grounding to help transition people to a meat-free diet, but this new book was... But this book was definitely for people who had already taken on vegetarianism as part of their lives, as this was a healthier, much more modern, at least in the style that we know it, form of vegetarian cooking. As Linda said... It was food for a new millennium. Sadly, I can't find any sales figures on this, as the bombshell of a veggie cookbook selling well had already been achieved by the first one, and so therefore was far less likely to be reported on. But again, if any of you bought this book or know how well it sold, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Now, folks, it sadly has to be pointed out at the end of this segment that this is going to be the last one. This is going to be the last Linda McCartney segment here on Paul or Nothing. I know I introduced this segment rather late, and when I redo some of the earliest episodes, I will definitely be adding this back in. Now, the episode is already as long as it is, and I want to give her cancer diagnosis and passing as much time as needed. I don't want to rush anything. I do want to do it justice, as it were, and possibly have someone on to discuss it with me. So you can expect to see that maybe around the Driving Rain episode, maybe just before, or I might even put it on it, who knows, whenever that will be, but yeah. Sorry folks, this is the last time we'll be discussing the lovely Linda, at least in terms of stuff she did whilst she was alive. Yeah, sorry to end the episode on a downer there folks, but yeah, this has been another episode of Paul or Nothing, this has been part one of three of our look at Flaming Pie. We actually haven't discussed Flaming Pie 
at all. You know, we've kind of touched on it and hinted at it. But now that all of the backstory is out of the way, the next episode, part two of three, as well as part three of three, the song by song discussion, is just going to be all flaming pie all the time. So, you know, expect a lot of hot pastry based stuff over the next couple of episodes, folks. Thank you all for listening in. I hope you've really enjoyed this episode. I've really enjoyed putting it together, actually. I'm really quite chuffed with this one as I've been putting it together. I really think that we've been able to uncover a lot of interesting elements of Paul's personal life, but I'm already sure Denny Lane is already playing this out, so I am going to wrap this up by just saying once again, thank you all for joining in. Keep listening to Paul. Keep listening to the Beatles. Keep eating veggie. Keep humming on your tropic islands. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Play it out now. Whatever. I went down to the beach and saw Kiki. She was all like, eh, and I'm like, whatever. Then this chick comes up to me and she's all like, hey, aren't you that dude? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So later, I'm, I'm at the pool hall and this girl comes up and she's all like, uh, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then it's 3 a.m. I'm on the corner wearing my leather. This dude comes up and he's like, hey, punk. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Then I'm throwing dice in the alley. Officer Leroy comes up and he's like, hey, I thought I told you. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then up comes Zaffo. I'm like, yo, Zaffo, what's up? He's like, I'm like, that's cool. Because this is my United States of oh, whatever. This is my United States of